A little hidden history, a little pedagogy, a lot of ways we can improve our teaching and mindset so that our history and social studies classrooms tell a more complete, diverse human story. I'm Cheryl Ann Amendola, and this is the Teaching History Her Way podcast. Hello, welcome to the Teaching History Her Way podcast. My name is Cheryl Ann Amendola. I am so glad that you are here listening. If you are a first time listener, Welcome. I'm so, so happy that you've decided to download the podcast. If you're a return listener, welcome back. I'm really glad you came back. Um, I enjoy doing this and I hope you're enjoying listening. Tonight, I have a very exciting guest, Luis Bravim. He is really cool. He's done a lot of very interesting stuff and I hope that um, you enjoy listening this evening. Luis has taught, trained, and managed students, faculty, and staff in the U.S., South Korea, and China. He is a two-time Teacher of the Year winner, coached the first sophomore to win a state championship in the Lincoln-Douglas debate in Florida, and serves as an AP workshop consultant and AP exam reader for College Board. So I'm super happy that he had time for us tonight to chat. Luis's passions also include speech and debate, horror movies, post-apocalyptic fiction, and making history accessible to all students K through 12. Luis, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. It's my pleasure, Cheryl Ann. Thanks for having me. So you are really well-rounded. You do a lot of very cool things. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your career before we jump into the nitty-gritty of language in the classroom? Awesome. I'll give you a, a general overview I started out on a law school trajectory. And in fact, I did go to law school in Washington, DC. When I was a 1L, first year law student, someone invited me to a community service project called the Genocide Teaching Project. The point of this was to visit local middle schools and local high schools in DC and teach them about the genocide that was then going on in the Sudan and also teach them about genocide in general, of course, with the hope of preventing it and also building awareness for future leaders. Well, it ended up being a lot more than I bargained for. I fell in love with teaching, and that was the end of the law for me. I soon became a substitute teacher, then I became a full-time classroom teacher, and eventually I went abroad and became a school administrator. That is a really interesting story. And it's also like middle schoolers kind of draw you in and make you fall in love with them. <laughs> they do. They do. They're very curious. Um, and it's also very cool that there are so many opportunities for teachers and also pre-service teachers or even pre-service anybody to jump into school systems and people really find their passions that way. So Beyond that very interesting experience of what made you become a teacher uh, and going abroad, the reason why Luis is here tonight is because I wanted to talk to him and have us him talk to us about our language in the classroom. As teachers, we are talking all day, whether we want to or not. We are we chat with our students. We are teaching lessons, so we're not necessarily scripted and preparing speeches in the same way as someone who's doing debate would or if a public speaker would, but we are in front of a classroom and that's public speaking in a way. Would you mind talking to us about best practices for avoiding gendered language or language that allows stereotypes to continue in our classrooms? Well, I think that the best practices question is complicated because Cheryl Ann, for me, 
it's not that gendered language is itself the problem. I believe gendered language is a symptom of a disease. We live in a gendered world. We have gender society. We have gender expectations. And the language is really just one component of this. So it's my belief that if you fixed all the gendered language in the English-speaking world, we would still have broadly the same problems in terms of accessibility and a pay gap and a glass ceiling. Now, I'm a teacher. Like you said, we spend a lot of time talking in the classroom. So I'm going to do my part to try to minimize whatever societal effect or student effect I may have so that I don't, I don't further this problem of creating a, a two-tiered society where we have different expectations for different people based on simple biology. Now, what would I do to reduce gender language in the classroom? First thing is you have to actually educate teachers about some things that happen in nearly every school, nearly every classroom, but that they're not aware of. For example, teachers on average spend two thirds of their time interacting with male students as opposed to female students. So when they're not doing whole group instruction, you see it's not just about the language, but rather there's differentiated attention. And that differentiated attention really reverberates through early elementary all the way through university. Think about, Cheryl Ann, think about how many times we say boys and girls, men and women. We use he as a gender neutral pronoun, man as a concept that includes all humans. It's really, really difficult to fix all of that in one single classroom, but I think you can at least not make it worse. Oftentimes, being from New Jersey, one of the things that I say is you guys, like all the time. And uh, one of the practices that I started was acknowledging that I say that and I shouldn't be saying that because I know that not everyone in the room is a guy and that is gendered language. And even though I fall back into the trap, I think showing my students that I'm trying is part of and acknowledging that there's an issue with it is part of trying to minimize that effect on our students. Um, so just working on your own language and finding those blind spots is really half the battle. Absolutely, Cheryl Ann. And I say you guys fairly often, I try not to, but it, I, when you hear something over and over again, it becomes part of your lexicon. What I think is even more important, Cheryl Ann, than working on those isolated incidents is making curricular choices so that we don't say things like the great men of history, which when I grew up in history class, I remember taking high school U.S. history I didn't learn about a lot of people who weren't white men, maybe two, three throughout the year. And I think if we correct all the you guys, but ignore the curricular choices that states and districts and teachers make, uh, we're missing the bigger issue. So don't feel so guilty about you guys, as long as your content is balanced. How do you suggest teachers look for their blind spots or look for those parts of their curriculum that they might not even notice. Because like you said earlier, we live in a gendered world. So a lot of times uh, we just take it as it is and we don't even notice that there is any kind of, that there's gendering in there because it's just so knocked into us that this is, this is what it is and this is how we read it. 
How do you suggest we look for those blind spots? That's a great question, Cheryl Ann. And I think if I had a good answer, I would be a lot richer than <laughs> I am today. I'll tell you how I can speak for myself. I'll tell you how I realized that I was perpetuating the patriarchy. First, I think it should be noted that I never even learned this term in my K through 12 education experience. Never once heard the term patriarchy mentioned in any English language arts, history, or civics class. But I ended up teaching a course called AP World History and patriarchy was embedded in the curriculum framework for that one particular course. And after teaching the course for years, I began to realize patriarchy was not something way back in the Paleolithic era, but patriarchy is, is alive and well today. In fact, I think maybe you'd agree as a history teacher, you can make a case that it's worse now than it was 100,000 years ago. And that's a big problem. So being aware that we live in a patriarchy, operate under patriarchal expectations, I think then you can start to say, well, when's the last time I mentioned a female author or a black author or a Latino author? When's the last time that I talked about a, a great woman of history that wasn't a wife, a girlfriend, etc.? And then you start noticing it everywhere. You notice it in movies, in television, music, social media. It, it really is a systemic problem well beyond education. And once you become aware of that, or at least I'm finding, once you become aware of the fact that we are living in this patriarchal society, you're looking at your history book, you're looking at your history curriculum, and you're seeing everybody is a dead white guy. <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel like it becomes almost easier, or for me, at least at this point now, it's second nature to think about who's missing. And then when I can't figure out who's missing, I go consult a colleague. And we work it out together, whether it's a colleague who's in my building or if it's one of the wonderful people in my Twitter personal learning network, or if it's somebody in another school or someone that I've met through professional development opportunities, working it out together is a lot easier than working it out on your own, especially if you're just starting or if you really are just not sure where to go with this. So for example, when we do the American Revolution and the colonial era um, in my class. We started out with this stations lesson many years ago where we looked at religion in the colonies and we looked at African-American people in the colonies and we looked at farmers in the colonies. But then if you look at those stations and you really think about who's missing, when you look at the religion piece, the religion station was only talking about Protestants. Well, there were Quakers, there were Baptists. Who else was there and who else can we honor in this? And then there was one station, it was women in the colonies. But then if you're reading about women, most of the time in the books that you're reading, you are reading about white women. And they're not, the authors in most cases or in most of the books that I've looked in, they're not distinguishing the fact that these are white women. They just kind of take for granted, like these are women, but not every woman had the same experience. So you have to think about, well, what about poor women? What about African-American women? What about Asian women? What about Latinx, uh, Lat Latina women, excuse me. So, I mean, there are lots of places that you need to look. If you look at farmers, there was one experience of a white farmer who had a decent amount of land, but then what about tenant farmers? What about free black farmers? What about sharecroppers? So really digging your 
hands in and getting dirty and not taking what you see is what you get. I think Louise is where you're going with this. Am I right? I think you're right, Cheryl Ann. If, if I had to critique the profession of secondary education as a whole, I would say we don't give nearly enough time for our teachers to plan and collaborate. I'm in my building about eight hours a day. I get 49 minutes of planning and preparation. And often that includes my time for, for eating and using the restroom and drinking water as well. So the level of collaboration that I'm afforded is minimal, especially when I'm trying to grow in my content knowledge and in my skills and in being an inclusive educator. So we, we should have time in the building to knock on our neighbor's door, talk to them about the last time they included a variety of different female perspectives in the classroom. Uh, but the fact is we're overburdened already. And unless you carve out space during the workday to do that, I feel it's probably gonna go by the wayside. And that's really unfortunate. And a lot of times I feel very fortunate in my school building because included in my schedule is a meeting time every other week. And then we find a free prep period on the off week so that as grade level teachers, we talk to each other. So we're constantly in communication and we can run these things by one another. But I know that there are other teachers who only have one prep period during the day or no prep periods during the day. And that falls on them to take personal time at the end of the day to figure these things out or talk to one another. And we just can't do that as a profession all the time. We have things outside of teaching that we do. So um, I, I hope that if there are any administrators possibly listening, <laughs> that that this would be something that they would take into consideration because we all want to do our best as teachers. We don't want to we don't want to fail our students. We don't want to see any kid feel like they don't see themselves in the classroom or feel like they're gender or sexuality or culture or ethnicity or race is not covered because everyone is 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 in american history everyone and um i i should hope that if any of you administrators out there are listening that you might take time to reflect upon the fact that in order for us to do our best work and in order for us to speak to students in an empathetic way and in order to prepare language that and curriculum that doesn't stereotype that we need time to be able to do that. And we need to be able to talk to each other. Absolutely. We, we need time to learn. We need time to grow. And a lot of it is conversations like you and I are having right now. I would never be able to do this podcast in a few weeks when the students are, are back. I would be inundated with grading papers and planning and preparing and doing meetings and practices. It, it would be impossible. But if enough teachers advocate for a more inclusive curriculum, and insist on holding professional development that talks about these issues, you know, maybe we get a, a window, a little window of opportunity there. So I want to take our conversation in a slightly different direction because we've talked about us as educators finding ways to change our language, to change the language in the curriculum, to make sure that it is more inclusive. But as teachers, we also wanna teach our students how to speak, how to speak to each other, how to speak in front of a room, how to speak to people in the community. And we want them to speak purposefully and with empathy, whether it's in their debate club or in the classroom or in a social situation with peers. 
do you have any advice about how we can go about helping our students learn to speak that way? Well, I, I don't know about you, Cheryl Ann, but when I was taking my courses to become a certified educator, not a single one was a public speaking course, even though that's so much of what we do, communicate verbally to a group of people, nothing. I had classes on pedagogy, classroom management, uh, law, a whole host of things, but never how to speak properly. Now, my background was a high school speech and debate kid. I did speech and debate in college pretty soon after I started coaching. So those things came not naturally to me, but with a lot of practice. So if you're an adult, if you're a 35 or 45 year old educator and you would like to improve your communication skills, I would say Toastmasters. Toastmasters is a great organization. It's very inexpensive. They have it all over the world. And that's a good way for the teacher to improve and therefore be able to model good practices of speaking intentionally, clearly, and even inclusively within the classroom. In other words, you can't teach what you yourself don't know. So I would say it starts with self-education and then just bringing those principles out there. I was super lucky. I started in the teaching program at Montclair State University. It's in Montclair, New Jersey, in case anybody is interested. And they actually made us take a public speaking course. And I remember all the people in the teaching program being like, oh, I don't want to do this. I thought it was so much fun. And it also really helped me figure out how to plan my lessons. So uh, my teacher had us outline everything before we started speaking. So it wasn't like we were reading verbatim from a card. It just reminded us where we wanted to go. I still do that for my lesson plans for myself, just on the side. I make some notes about, I want to talk about this first and this second and this third. And I show my students that very often because we talk and I always tell them I'm not speaking off the cuff. This is Yes, it's kind of improv in that I'm not reading from something, which would totally bore you, but I'm also preparing it before I start talking. So if you want to say something and you're nervous about raising your hand, just jot down what you want to say first. This way you're very purposeful in how you want to go about your your answer or the dialogue in the room. That's a good point, Cheryl Ann, and I'm glad the state of New Jersey is doing some good with their education programs, Florida could learn. I will give one tip for, for your audience today. You mentioned different ways that you could communicate, having a script, which would be completely prepared, or you could go off the cuff, that would be impromptu speaking. Your goal should be right in the middle, what I call extemporaneous speaking, where you might have notes, but you're not reading word for word. Reading word for word is boring. Kids could read word for word on their own. You could just give them a copy of your presentation. They'll read it faster than you can say it. And so I would say practicing the skill of extemporaneous speaking where you have, you have a guide, guideline. There's a finish line at the end. You know where you're going, but you don't necessarily have every word down. That's more authentic communication. I think you'll get more attention from students and you'll have more fun than if you're just reading. You definitely don't want a student to ever raise their hand and say, this could have been done in an email. <laughs> so do you have any parting words that you might want to share with us? Some more advice because your advice has been great. And I, I've really enjoyed your insights, especially the idea of making sure that teachers have time to prepare, time to reflect. That is so very important to me. But what else do you think you want to 
tell us before we end today? Because I know that there's a lot. <laughs> there, there is a lot. I would say two things. First, if you can, watch the TED Talk called The Power of a Single Story. Very, very good TED Talk. I recommend it to everybody. I second that. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. The second thing I would say is push yourself to improve as an educator, not year by year, but class by class. If you teach American history four times and the fourth group got the same quality as the first group, I think that's a missed opportunity, right? We, we always can grow. We can always get better. We can find the question we had trouble answering in period one and have the, the perfect answer for period three. We can find the name we were missing in period two and be better prepared. And that comes down to preparation and, and using the time that you have, what little time between classes uh, to push yourself. And I think if we all do that, then eventually we do get to that point where we have a less gendered classroom. And hopefully we're not saying you guys all the time. <laughs> Well, thank you so very much, Louise. I thought this was a really great conversation and very much as I expected, you are an excellent speaker. I hope everyone enjoyed listening to you as much as I did because I truly enjoyed this. Louise, if someone wants to get in touch with you post-podcast, what is the best way for them to do that? There are two good ways. One is, is plain old boring email. You can email me at louise, L-U-I-Z dot bravim at gmail.com. And I know everybody's going to forget that. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Ed Leader MBA. And I'll communicate with you any way you want. I wish I could say all these fancier things, Snapchat and TikTok. I don't do any of that stuff. In terms of technology, I keep it old school. I'm still working on the TikTok myself. So, um, And I will link your email and your LinkedIn information in the podcast description. As for me, if you would like to get in touch with me between episodes, you can find me on Twitter at History Herway, on Instagram at Teaching History Herway, or on my website at www.teachinghistoryherway.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, and I hope you have a great week. Until next week, everybody, I'll see you then.